give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Habab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zarnanan near Kadesh. When they said Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagayim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hogayim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your church here in Antalya and for all those who contribute to the life of St. Paul's Union Church. We pray especially today for Dindi and thank you for her dedication and work. Be with her this morning especially and give us ears and hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Hallelujah. Just a word of reassurance to the men sitting here as they're seeing women reading and reading about women and women standing up here. I just want you to know. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> One of the points I want to make, and I will reiterate later, is we work together. We work together. We're all part of the body of Christ. So don't worry. Rest assured, men and women. Wow. Well, thank you for the honor of speaking to you today. It's truly an honor. And these passages that we're studying are really interesting. The 100 passages, 50 in the Old Testament, 50 in the New. And I hope you're reading along because you'll get a, a good picture of the whole Bible. Not that you shouldn't read what's in between these passages, but nonetheless, it's a wonderful way to get a picture of the overall uh, thrust of the Bible, the whole Bible. Now, we're talking today, this week, actually, we're finishing out this period of the judges. So what are we talking about in terms of time? We're talking about, say, between the 14th and 11th centuries BC, before Christ. 
We're talking about 13 judges in total, if you count Samuel. And we're talking about today about Deborah, who, let's say it's disputed, but about the year 1200 BC or the 13th century was about the time frame we're looking at, just to give you an idea. Now, a lot of you know the whole story of how judges um, functioned, the whole story of that period of time. But in case you don't, or just to quickly go over it, let, like to say a couple of things. Judges chapter two gives you a very good idea of what that period was like. What it says there is that when Joshua and the elders died, the generation that came up after them did not know or really understand or hadn't experienced the ways of the Lord, the way the previous generation had. And so as a result, as time went on, they kind of started to do their own thing. They fell away from the Lord more and more to the point where they were in what we call apostasy. They had really left God behind. They were serving other gods. They had intermarried with the peoples around them, which was really not at all endorsed or encouraged. They weren't to do that. They did that. They did lots of things they weren't to do. And God just stopped fighting for them, it says in chapter 2 of Judges. He just said, okay, if that's how you want to behave, go at, have at it. And of course, things went from bad to worse and worse and worse to the point where they finally cried out in their great distress, it says. Well, God is very patient and kind. We've been singing about that. We know that. And he didn't want to really see them perish. So he rescues them by sending a deliverer or a judge. And as you know, during the time of the judge, they would kind of straighten up, you know, and the land would have peace for a number of years. And then when the judge died, guess what? Started all over again. Robin called it a broken record, and indeed it was, over and over and over. So into this kind of a setting comes the story of Deborah that Mary read for us. Thank you. So Deborah was, we know three things basically. We're told about her right away. She was the wife of Lapidoth. We don't know anything much more than that. She held court or judged, decided disputes for the people under the palm of Deborah in the hill country of Ephraim, which is further south than most of the story is taking place. Most of it takes place in northern Israel, but she's in the southern hills there in Ephraim like Moses deciding disputes, that's what she did. And then the most telling thing about her, in my opinion, is she was a prophet or prophetess. That must have been very helpful when you're deciding disputes to hear from God for people. Now, what was going on in this time period that Deborah was judging is the Canaanites had been allowed to take over when the people were in that place of apostasy. And they had, the word says there in chapter 4, been cruelly 
treating the people and oppressing them for 20 years. Their king was named Jabin. And forgive me if our pronunciation changes. Sometimes I say Sisera, sometimes I say Sisera. Please forgive me. But anyway, that guy was the commander. And they had 900 chariots fitted with iron or iron chariots. Now, I want to say a word about Judges 4 and 5. Chapter 4 gives the story of what happened, which we're mostly going by and which Mary read. But chapter 5 is a song, the song of Deborah and Barak, really, about what happened in chapter 4. And what's interesting, it's a poem, basically, and what's interesting is that there are some facts in there that are not in chapter 4. So every now and then, I will weave that in to the story, because it's integral to the story. Okay, so we have Deborah holding court there under that beautiful tree. I love the trees that are mentioned throughout the Old Testament. You know, it's like, there you are with this flatland and suddenly a gorgeous tree, and they'll say, like, that's the site of this well or this grave or this altar or something. They're just beautiful, I think. Anyway, so she was under the palm of Deborah. Now, the thing about the way God operates, I'm sure you've figured this out too, is sometimes it seems like it takes forever to get an answer to your prayer or to your cry of distress. But when God moves, when he answers, sometimes it's right there, you know, be ready. And I think that's what happened. I think Deborah got a prophetic word from God. She got a word from God. When God says it's time, you better listen up. See, what's he going to say? What does he want? And here's what he said. And by the way, okay, I should mention Barak. We don't know much about him at all. All we know is he was the son of Abinoam, and he was from the northern part of Israel also. That's about it. So anyway, what we have in her word that she got from the Lord in Judges 4, verse 6, God told her to send for him, okay? Bring him down where she is. And she says to him, Barak, the Lord God of Israel commands you, go, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulon, tribes that are up there in the north, and lead the way to Mount Tabor, also up in the northern area. That's what she says Barak needs to do. And then she tells him, what God's going to do. She says in verse 7 to him, I will lead, or one of the verses says, lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Give him into your hands. Can you imagine? This guy, you know, this is what she tells him. I've got a word from the Lord. And some people call him wishy-washy in his response. Lots of things like that. But here's what he says in the next verse. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Talk about pressure. <laughs> 
I can imagine what Deborah might have been thinking at that point. One of the possible things she was thinking of that she'd heard somewhere Joshua's words in chapter 17 we have recorded. Joshua told some of the people around him, though the Canaanites have iron chariots and though they're strong, you can drive them out. Maybe that occurred to her. You know, that's what Joshua said years ago. And then she said something about herself, which is quite unique. She said she called herself a mother in Israel. A mother in Israel. And the reason I think that's really interesting at this point is as she's maybe mulling over, should I go with Barak? He's telling me he's not going to do it unless I go. A mother, as Isaiah 49 says, does not forget her children. When you feel like a mother, you can be a spiritual mother, ladies. <laughs> you don't have to be a physical mother. And men also have that kind of compassion. I know Robin referred to that verse a couple of weeks ago. It's really a part of God's character that he gives us. Maybe she thought, you know, this is, this is the flock of God. I'll go with him. And she says, I'll go. I'll go, Barak. I'm willing. But, but, because of the way you're going about this, the honor is going to go, for Sisera's death is going to go to a woman. That's what she says. If you'll excuse me, I have to get a drink of water. I'm terrible. I'm sorry. Thank you for your indulgence. <laughs> so she says she will go with him. And they head up north. Now, I want you to picture this. Some people say that it was Deborah's presence because uh, Barack wants her to go along, I think, as a prophet or a prophetess. I don't think he needs her to fight so much. You know, we see pictures of her holding a spear like she's, you know, some kind of warrior. I see her more, her role as very much speaking for God. That's, I think, why he wants her along. And some people say that maybe her presence and her leadership and her reputation, which was apparently very good, would have inspired the people from Zebulon and Naphtali and also the tribe of Issachar, which is in that area, to join up with Barak. So picture this now. They are on Mount Tabor. 10,000, let's say. That's what the Bible tells us. 10,000 of them are up there waiting. God said, go, we're here, we're waiting. Now we have an interesting new addition to the story. Heber, or Heber, the Kenite, the Kenites being relatives of Moses' brother-in-law, they were tent-dwelling people. And some of them had separated from others, and Heber and his clan had become kind of peaceful and friendly with Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. So he also was up in that area. 
And he heard, he got word, that all these Israelites were up on Mount Tabor. What's going on? And he tells his pal, his friend, anyway, Sisera, you better pay attention to this. You know, it's like if there's a protest going on or something. What's going on over here? And, of course, Sisera is alarmed, and he gathers together his 900 chariots of iron. And all the people, all these soldiers and army and people that he has, and they're down in the valley below Mount Tabor, okay? Valley of Jezreel. So I think this picture is very important. You're taking a man, Barak, wishy-washy, maybe, at first, at least equivocating, who's managed to get himself and 10,000 people and Deborah all up on Mount Tabor. But facing him, picture it, 900 chariots in the valley below and people as far as the eye can see, way outnumbering that group of Israelites up on Mount Tabor. What's Barak going to do? And it's interesting to me because the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the chapter of faith, you know, the hall of faith, you might say, lists Barak, not Deborah, as one of the heroes of faith. And that has puzzled me until I saw this next moment that I'm going to mention. I think that's the change in Barak. And that's kind of, I feel like God wants to speak to us about today. Keep it in mind that a wishy-washy person or a person who's not very strong in faith can grow and learn to trust God and become a person of faith. Barak is there. They're all waiting, and they have the picture I mentioned to you. Finally, Deborah gets her second prophetic word. It starts with the same word as the first one. Go. Go. Time for action. And she says, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And that is all he has to go on. Remember, 20 years of cruel treatment, way outnumbered. Israel does not have a spear or a shield among 40,000, chapter 5 tells us in the poem. They don't have weapons. Okay? What do some people say? It's like he's walking out on nothing but the word of God. Talk about trust. I think that would take a little trust, don't you? Especially when you started out rather spineless, I guess, if you buy that. <laughs> Potential was there. What is Barack going to do? Deborah's done her part. She's gave, given the word. He changes. He has become that man of faith that is listed in Hebrews 11 and in 1 Samuel 12. Barak advances. He starts 
down Mount Tabor with the 10,000 men following. We don't know if Deborah accompanied him down or not because she's not in the rest of the story, really, but she played a major part. Barak advances. And when he does, God moves. And I want to point out something. You know, sometimes we take a step of obedience. The act isn't completed yet. The victory hasn't been won yet. But God sees the act of obedience. It says he advanced and then God did something amazing. Think about, for example, Abraham up on Mount Moriah with Isaac. Isaac tied up, you know, and ready to be sacrificed. And Abraham, what does he do? He lifts his hand with the knife. And God says, Abraham, Abraham, no, 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 no. Don't do it. I've seen your act of obedience. That's enough. So don't worry if things aren't all figured out. Just start. And then the Bible says that at Barak's advance, God routes Sisera and all the troops. It uses the word rout, R-O-U-T. This is God's weapon. God has a major part in this story. He's really like a character in the story, you might say, because he throws the army into panic, confusion, and all kinds of problems start to happen. At Barak's advance, at his obedience, God starts everything in motion. And then chapter 5 adds some really good details I want to read to you because you wouldn't get the full picture if you don't see this. Judges chapter 5, verse 4. Oh, Lord, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. Guess what? It rained. God poured down water, lots of water. And what happens to the ground when lots of water comes down? We get mud, mud. And what happens to iron chariots in the mud? They're not going anywhere, are they? They're stuck. They're stuck in the mud. Who knew? Barak didn't know. Deborah only knew that God was going to do something. That's what he did. And then something else. Further down in chapter 5, verse 20. From the heavens, now mind you, God is fighting on earth. He's fighting in heaven. I mean, everywhere. He's everywhere. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. What do we call it when a river overflows its banks and sweeps everything away? I believe we call it a flash flood. So everything is conspiring against these 900 chariots and all of the people from Canaan. And it says they all fell by the sword. Not a man was left. I don't know if the Israelites picked up their swords or what, because they didn't have their own. So God 
did something incredible. And I want to encourage you today, if you're up there on Mount Tabor thinking, oh my goodness, Lord, what am I going to do? And below you is a problem, a big problem. Just remember, if God said go, he'll take care of it. But do wait for his timing. It's very important. Okay. Now, Barak is going to pursue Sisera because he is the only one that is still left. And he abandons his chariot and flees. Now, where does he flee? He's going to flee somewhere he feels is safe. I'm going to take another break. Excuse me. He's going to take another break. So what does he do? Remember I said that the Kenites had moved near Jabin, near uh, the area in northern Israel where the Canaanite king lived. So he flees in that direction. And now we're introduced to somebody new at this point in the story. Jael, or J-L, however. I'm not sure what my pronunciation will be, to be honest. It might change. Anyway, Jael then sees um, Sisera fleeing. Now, I'm assuming that a lot of news is traveling here, and maybe she knows he, he might come by. But he comes right in front of her tent. And the women, apparently, in the Old Testament, at least, seem to have their own tents. We read about Isaac and Rebekah getting married in Sarah's tent. We read about Leah having a tent. So we see here that Hebert's wife, Jael, has her own tent. And so uh, Sisera comes running by. Now, we don't know what she was thinking, but I like to try to imagine anyway. And I think she had to make a decision. Maybe she'd already thought about it, but she had to make a split-second decision. She goes out to meet him. The decision's made, and she says, Sir, please come in and rest in my tent. I know you're exhausted. Now, this is totally against all Middle Eastern hospitality. A woman would never, never invite a man into her tent especially a married woman, and oh my goodness. But this is a special situation. Come on in and rest. Don't be afraid. He does. He's desperate. He's searching for a place to hide and rest. So he comes in, and she lays him down, be comfortable, covers him up. He says, I'm thirsty. Could I have some water? She says, have some milk. I don't know, I'm not a big milk drinker, but people drink it to, at night when they're tired, I'm told. They heat it up and have a, a glass of milk before sleeping. <laughs> so there's something in milk, actually, that does help with drowsiness. So now he's drowsy, he's exhausted. And just before he falls asleep, he says, by the way, he says, stand in the tent doorway, and if anyone comes by, tell them, I'm not here. You don't know. You haven't seen anyone. Okay. But that's not what happens, is it? The next part is a little hard to, to talk about because it's really gory, really. Um, but Jael has made her decision. And I'm told that the women often are the ones that pitch the tents. So she has a sharp tent peg and a hammer right there. Apparently, she doesn't hesitate. She puts it in his temple as he sleeps 
deeply sleeping, puts it, hammers it through his skull and into the ground and kills him right on the spot. Wow. So pretty soon, Barack comes running by. It's quite a pathway there, apparently, in front of her tent, because he now is there. And she says, Barack, come in. I'm going to show you the man you're looking for. And Barack comes in with her to the tent, looks down, and there lies Sisera, dead. Dead. What was the prophetic word that Deborah gave? The honor will go to a woman. The honor will go to a woman. And the word says, on that day, in Judges 4, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. The land had peace then for 40 years. For 40 years. What an amazing story. How many lessons are there for us? And I don't want to talk too long, so I'll just tie it up with a few things I think are lessons for us. Number one, Barack and Deborah worked together. I believe that's God's picture for the body of Christ. We must work together. There's no competition there's no adversarial relationship if we put the commander-in-chief first. Put him first, and we can work together. Secondly, sometimes we do have that mountain. We're up a mountain here, and then there's the enemy here, and we have to trust God, don't we? Are we going to trust in chariots? Later, I'll read something from Psalm 20 about that. Are we going to trust in chariots or are we going to trust in God? We have a choice. But it starts out, I believe, with what the Israelites did, which is crying out to God, trusting that God may not answer right away, but he does hear us. He does listen. And if we will listen for his voice, he'll tell us when it's time to act. Time to go, time to do whatever he tells us. And then thirdly, let's not have what I want to call the judge's syndrome. Let's not pledge ourselves to follow God. And then as soon as things turn a little sour, or in their case, the judge died, or things don't go the way we'd hoped, well, we're not so sure about our faith. If we say we're going to follow God, let's do our best asking him for his grace to be steadfast. To be steadfast, to follow him, even when we're not sure of the path ahead, but he will show us. He goes ahead of us, just as he did with Barak. Let's pray. Father God, we want to say thank you. We want to say thank you today, Lord. 
because you are the God who is trustworthy. We can trust you. And if anybody here today is in that place where they feel they are up there, quivering, waiting, God, speak. The enemy is down below. The enemy is too much. God, show them that you are the fighter for them. Show them that in your perfect timing, you will rout the enemy because all things are possible with you. Thank you, Lord, that you care enough, God, that you speak to us. Help us to hear your voice, Lord. Help us to hear what you want and to work together with others in the body of Christ so that we might accomplish your will in this generation. I want to just pray, Father, for a few things that are around us that we read about in the news, that we experience, that we hear about a lot. The earthquake victims are on our hearts, all of us. We pray for them. I've seen beautiful videos of churches in Samson and Izmir and elsewhere and here in Antalya helping the victims, bringing supplies, and people saying, thank God you're here helping us. Oh, Father, thank you for all those who are uh, helping others in need. And we pray that we might always represent you well. Always represent you well, Lord. Be with those who've lost everything. Help them, Jesus. Help them, Lord, in the name of Christ. We also remember the Ukraine. It's one year since the war began. Father, please talk about a group of people who feel that the other, the enemy or the oppressor is way more powerful. We just ask you to be with the people of Ukraine right now and be with the people of Russia too, Lord, because many of them are suffering too. Be with the people of Nigeria as they count the election results. Be with so many people are on our hearts. People in California with snow in Southern California, unheard of. But God, we just know that you are present throughout this world. And we ask, Lord, that you might grow love and trust and compassion in our hearts more and more every day. In Jesus' name, amen.